Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I've got my Bible open to Psalm 31, verse 24. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. That's uh, certainly Rosie, who's in the studio as my producer, and me and my guest Rob Bluey. We all hope in the Lord. So let's be strong and take heart. We've got a great show for you. Rob's going to come on in just a second, and then Scott Hubbard will be joining me in the second half of this hour. He is from Desiring God. We're looking forward to meeting up with Scott again. And hour two is going to be a whole lot of fun as well. Beverly Canaris will be talking about Psalm 63 today. And then Dwight Nordstrom is coming in, and we're going to talk about his businesses in China. He's been over there doing business uh, in China for 30 years and doing his missionary work as well. It's a fascinating story. So that's how we're going to do the day, and I'm glad you're with me. Let's start with Rob Bluey. He's my Washington, D.C. correspondent and also the executive editor at The Daily Signal and just fresh back from his 4th of July weekend. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be back. I missed you last week. I missed you, too. We did. Uh, we we had a nice uh, chat with Genevieve Wood. She was great, um, but we always miss you. Yeah, well, Genevieve is, and it was nice to uh, escape Washington, D.C. for a few days, visit upstate New York, where oh, I, I was was born and grew up and, uh, and, and spent some time with, with my parents. So, you know, uh, it always is a, a, a reset and a refresh to, um, to, to visit this great American country of ours, particularly around J- the July 4th holiday. We also had a very special occasion. We celebrated my great aunt's 100th birthday, wow. Bill. Just amazing uh, uh, on her part. To, uh, uh, she's done so much for our family, and uh, whether it be the faith or, or bringing the family together, yeah. Uh, it's just been uh, so many wonderful memories, and uh, I encourage everyone uh, to make that those birthdays uh, so special because um, you'll really cherish them, I think, uh, throughout your life. So, anyways, let's get to politics. But I wanted to just share that personal <laughs> anecdote with you as well. well before we before we jump into uh, that, let's. I, I'm just curious, what is the drive from your driveway to your parents in upstate New York? How, how many hours? Uh, it's a seven hour trip. Okay. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> so how many is. times did your kids say we're almost there? <laughs> Quite a bit, more than I can count. Uh, no, they're, they're good. The little one still uh, still usually naps uh, for a good portion of the trip, uh, at least in the afternoon. So uh, we we are we are accustomed to it. Look, they okay. are so excited to see Grandma and Grandpa that uh, oh, you know yeah. they're at the they're at the age where and they actually spent the week with them. We left them up there, and then I went and picked them up over the the past weekend. So really, um, something special that we try to do every year: give the grandparents an opportunity to uh, to spend some quality time with them. And, and get to explore some of the same things that I did when I was a kid. So it was yeah. a fantastic week. That's fantastic. Well, let's jump into what's going on in uh, the nation's capital. I, it is interesting, the, Cuba's in the news with the fight against uh, communism. That's right. Uh, we had a, a big development on Sunday. Of, of course, uh, this totalitarian country uh, for many years has um, has been a focus of the United States. I mean, going back decades, let's face it, I mean, 62 years of this repressive regime, starting with the Castros. And uh, the Cuban people are, have had enough. I mean, they started to speak out. Now, they do very genuinely fear for their lives when they do things like protests. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's a 
natural occurrence here in our own country and something that I think sometimes may, may, may take for granted. But in Cuba, you'll face uh, significant consequences for that. We get thrown in jail. You, you might even, um, you know, find yourself injured or, or killed as a result of this. I mean, the communists are not messing around when they come after you. And so it was quite unprecedented for, for this to happen all across uh, the island on Sunday. Uh, we even saw uh, President Biden put out a statement supporting the Cuban people. It surprised um, some of us, uh, particularly because those to his left uh, have, have said nice things about uh, the Cuban regime in the past and uh, its socialist policies. But I think that um, a combination of failures of the government there uh, a lack of freedom and a di really dire situation with COVID-19 and, and the um, ineffectiveness of their vaccine uh, really probably fueled a lot of this, uh, this emotion and outpouring of support, uh, people chanting, uh, you know, freedom and liberty. Uh, really powerful to see. Yeah. Rob, what will this uh, yield for the, the Cubans who are uh, protesting? What, what do you anticipate this, this yielding for them? Well, I think that it's th these next few days are going to be critical because obviously the government wants to diminish this and, and, and suppress any kind of dissent. So, I mean, they will go out in, in full force to attempt to do that. Um, if uh, more and more people rise up, uh, I think it'll be uh, really quite um, uh, revolutionary in terms of, of what might happen. Now, I think the United States can play a big role in this as uh, as as a neighbor to Cuba, as a place that's uh, that's taken in many Cuban refugees over the decades, I think that uh, we it's in, it's in our own self interest to promote freedom and their um, their ability to to have more say in the process. I mean, they are they are governed right now by a dictator um, who is really a puppet of the the Castro family. And I think it's uh, quite uh, quite revealing that so many people have decided that it's worth the risks associated with speaking up. And I, I ultimately don't know if it'll end up in a, in a situation where we can finally see freedom come to the island of Cuba again. But uh, but that should be in our hopes and prayers, Bill. Mm -hmm. Rob, what's going on in in the legislature in Texas? I know there was recently a, a uh, they were unable to develop a quorum, so they had no opportunity to have that election reform legislation passed. What happened? That's right. If you go back to the end of May, beginning of June, the Texas legislature was unable to accomplish all of its work because Democrats decided that they would prevent the legislature from ha having a quorum. And that is, uh, it's, it requires a two-thirds, um, two-thirds of the members to be present in order for, for the legislature to conduct its business. And so by simply sitting out, the Democrats were unable to do that. So fast forward to this week, the governor, Greg Abbott, has called a special session of the legislature. And the Democrats, rather than engaging in the people's business, they have decided to board a private plane and fly to Washington, D.C., so obviously they are not present in Texas right now, and the legislature cannot complete its business. And uh, it's, um, I, I think, you know, a, a telling sign on the part of, of these Democrats that uh, that they've decided to abandon their posts and 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 flee the state. Now, it's really um, a, a situation we don't know how it's ultimately going to resolve. Uh, some of the, those in Texas have said that there, you know, can be the, the lawmakers can be arrested and be brought back to the state. I don't know if they'll take that step. It seems that some are, are certainly suggesting that, that that is the move that they should. But I think, Bill, it's also um, something that you and I've talked about in the past. We, we can't, it seems that we're so far apart on issues now that we resort 
to tactics like this. And I think it's unfortunate uh, to see this happen, in part because some of the legislative changes that the Texas legislature has been debating would actually expand voting rights. Yes, there are measures included in the proposals that the Democrats don't like. Uh, And we know that. I mean, they would require uh, voter identification for mail-in ballots to make sure that the mail-in ballots are consistent with the, the ballots that you go, would go and use um, if you show up at a polling place. Uh, there's limits on, on vote trafficking and uh, some of the other measures that, um, that we've seen pop up in other states to, to limit the ability for people to cheat and, and commit fraud. It's all about restoring trust in our elections. And I think that uh, by, by abandoning the state, actually, you, the Democrats are going to be limiting some of the expansion um, in voting rights that, uh, that have been negotiated in these, these bills. And so, um, you know, I, I don't ultimately know how it's going to end up, Bill, but uh, but certainly an interesting story to watch and something unusual <laughs> that's uh, playing out in Austin right now. It seems, Rob, that there's overwhelming support on both sides of the aisle for people uh, showing ID for voter for voting. You're absolutely correct. And we've even seen a change at the national level and even in Georgia. I mean, it was uh, Stacey Abrams who yeah. led the fight in, in Georgia, who has since come out and said some positive things about voter ID. Um, you heard the same thing on Capitol Hill uh, from James Clyburn, a, a black Democrat from South Carolina. So I, I, I thought that the Democrats were moving beyond that issue because they looked at the polling and recognized that it wasn't an issue that they would wor- would be worth staking a fight over. But in this particular case in Texas, um, they've decided that uh, it, it is important for them to do so. So I, I ultimately think that, you know, it's all gonna, going to come down to what the voters decide at the ballot box. Um, but right now it's, uh, it's hanging in the balance because unless there is a, Unless there was enough people present in in the legislature, they can't get the work done, and it's unclear if they're going to be willing to return. Now, here's the thing, Bill. It's unique about Texas. Unlike the the, the U.S. Congress, where it is a full-time job, Texas is a part-time legislature. So these individuals who have fled the state probably have other jobs. They're oh. not doing the they're not doing their people's business full-time, and so uh, they have to go back to work in some capacities. A lot of states have setups like that. So we shall see. Ultimately Ultimately, what uh, what happens? But um, I suspect that sooner or later they will have to go back home. Mm-hmm. Rob Pastor uh, Jay Smith wrote an interesting article that shows up on the Daily Signal. Uh, listeners can go to DailySignal.com to read more about that. But I would love for you to talk about that when we come back from the break, uh, if that's good with you. Rob Louis, my let's guest. do it. He's the executive editor at the Daily Signal and also my Washington D.C. go-to guy. I'll be right back. Rob Bluey, executive editor at The Daily Signal. Hey, Rob, before we jump into this next story, I do want to add something back into the previous story when uh, we were talking about what was happening in the Texas legislature. This is not only a Democrat stunt. The Oregon Republicans did something very similar to this not that long ago. 
That's right. Uh, they they did on the issue of uh, of a carbon tax. Um, so yeah, it, you're absolutely correct. But uh, Bill, I I don't necessarily think that it's it's a stunt that <laughs> if if I were in their shoes, I'm not sure that I would I would I would do it. I mean, I think that there are other means to go about. Um, well, I mean, let's let's put it in the words of of wasn't it Rahm Emanuel who said elections do have consequences. <laughs> so um, you know, if you don't like what your elected officials are doing, there are ways to go about changing that rather than trying to, to stymie the, the process. Um, and, and I think that there is somewhat of a double standard in the news media where uh, I, I saw many reporters on Twitter celebrating the fact that the Democrats were doing this yesterday when I seem to recall that when Republicans did it a couple of years ago, uh, it was um, it was it was certainly criticized and, and not reflected, not not looked on as fondly yeah. uh, from members of the press. So we know that the media bias exists. And uh, and I think it's important for us to, to call it out when we see it. Yeah, sure. Rob, tell the story about Pastor Jay Smith at Cedar Park Church in Washington. He apparently right now is um, his congregation is being ordered by Washington state officials to provide an insurance plan that covers abortions. Yeah, he writes this really interesting piece for the Daily Signal in which he says, you know, directly it, Washington state would would essentially force Cedar Park Church to directly pay for abortion coverage. Um he says that this is like putting bullets in a gun mm-hmm. that we we know that we know would be used to end a child's life. Uh he says it's antithetical to everything that we preach, teach and believe. And it's the reason that he's uh, teamed up with the Alliance Defending Freedom Attorneys to file a lawsuit in the Ninth Circuit. Um, You know, I think that this is one of those things, Bill, when we talk about religious liberty, and and there's a lot of events going on in Washington, D.C. and around the country this week because it's International Religious Freedom Week. And I I think that it it just goes to show how far we've come in our own country um, in terms of trying to defend uh, individuals and and churches' ability to to practice the beliefs um, that are are so central and and a core uh, to what they believe in. And so in this particular case, um, the church is is arguing that uh, the state should not be forced to compel them to do this. And uh, there should be an exemption, a religious exemption, uh, because uh, it, it is in conflict uh, with, with their faith. So uh, we certainly want to uh, give, uh, give him an opportunity to speak out on this issue, and we'll be clo- following the case closely because I think it will have broad implications. Now, the Supreme Court has um, sided with those in individuals on the side of religious liberty recently. So my hope is that if it reaches that level, um, it would come out favorably. But uh, definitely concerning that states feel the ability um, to to compel uh, individuals and organizations to to take these actions. Mm-hmm. Rob, the summertime violence is already going up, and I know across a lot of cities here in America, it is a result of the defund police movement. I know there's a lot of Democratic-run cities that are uh, in favor of this. I believe, isn't there also a couple of Republican ones? Yes. Well, so the the issue is big. And we also have a piece on the Daily Signal exploring this in, in more detail. And I think that there's a, a, it, it's it's first of all, it is really shocking when you look at some of the statistics and you see how significant the spike in crime has been largely happening after uh, the George Floyd death in, in Minneapolis. Um, now, it's hard exactly to to pinpoint the why, why this massive surge in violent crime has come about. But you identified, Bill, a, a couple of the reasons that I think we can probably uh, rightly draw conclusions. So 
yes, there has been a movement afoot to defund the police, but I think broader than that, Bill, there has been a move to demean and diminish uh, officers, individual officers who have decided to either walk away in terms of retirement or resign and pursue other careers. And they haven't been able to find replacements because, frankly, uh, it's not quite a popular profession anymore when so many people are, are criticizing them day in and day out. And so, yes, there are other factors like the summer weather, which tends to uh, be partly to blame for an increase in, in violence. But um, I think that, you know, it's something that we need to, to be really, frankly, very concerned about because right now it might be limited to just major cities. But I think that over time we can start to see that spread to other places. And I think it's one of the reasons why you've even seen the Democratic Party start to moderate some of its perspective. Um, Joe Biden had at the White House just yesterday the uh, the mayoral uh, nominee, the Democratic nominee for New York City, uh, who uh, won on running on a pro-police, pro-safety platform and beat all of the other Democrats uh, in the primary as a result of that um, that message. And so even in a place like New York City, which tends to be quite liberal or progressive, you're seeing that message win at the ballot box. Yeah, I'm not surprised. People need to feel safe. They need to feel like they can uh, go out and, and go to shopping in downtown and uh, I mean when target stores are closing at six in dangerous neighborhoods that sends a signal that it's not safe anymore it, it certainly does and and bill I I think you know we've talked about it before I, I think that there there is a role here for for religion and uh, and, and churches and civil society because I think when people don't necessarily have that grounding in their life, they yeah. may resort to to violence. And I think that this is where, uh, as people have moved away, uh, in, in part, COVID had an impact on this because, let's face it, we couldn't gather in our churches. Um, and you didn't necessarily have those, those strong ties or bonds with individuals, even though things obviously continued virtually. But I think that um, this is an area where we're not, we're not always going to find answers by looking to the police or looking to government. Uh, there's a role for us in our own civil society here to try to help those in need and dissuade them from turning to violence. Um, and, you know, that's, um, that's a big challenge on the part of all of us. But I think it's, uh, it's a role that each of us um, has to take seriously in our own lives. Yeah. Rob, I don't know much about this lawsuit that uh, President Donald Trump uh, is putting up against big tech. Well, <laughs> and let's hope your show is not going to be censored for us talking about it, Bill, because, uh, because from what I understand, uh, there, <laughs> there have been, uh, even in recent days, the president's speech at CPAC, for instance, was taken down. So it, what, 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 he's, what he's done is he's filed a class action lawsuit, and there have actually been a number of people who've signed on to the lawsuit who themselves say that they've been censored by big tech platforms. But the president, as we all know, after the January 6th, uh, events at the at the Capitol where um, individuals stormed the doors and resulted in the death of 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 a uh, one of the protesters and the injuries to several police officers. Uh, well, that whole situation, uh, many of the social media platforms said, was directly attributable to President Trump. And so you'll remember in the aftermath of that, they decided to ban him from the platforms. Now, Facebook is going through a process where you know they will evaluate in two years whether the president is is welcome back. Twitter has said he's banned indefinitely and and Google and YouTube have continued to take action against against him so uh, it's it's a, it's really interesting to watch now it's 
uh, the, the whether the lawsuit has any merit in the courts, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, you know, there are, are some who suggest it'll be thrown out immediately. There are others who think that it, you know, it could ultimately end up at the Supreme Court. Who knows? But I think one of the things it does illustrate is there, there's growing frustration about this collusion between government and big tech uh, to take action. And one of the things that um, uh, you're starting to see, and this is a bipartisan effort, Bill, uh, it's going through the House Judiciary Committee. There's a series of bills uh, that seek to break up big tech, uh, to take more action. There's serious conversations happening in Washington about changing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And so I think that Regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, even the ACLU has come out and said that we should be concerned about the power that big tech has. Um, I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have. It's worthwhile for your listeners to be paying attention to and engaged in because this is largely how we communicate now through these platforms and they do control an enormous amount of power. And We should be paying close attention to the actions that they're taking because it could affect all of us. As the president himself said, if they can do this to the president of the United States, there's no doubt they can do it to you. Mm-hmm. Rob, a recent Gallup poll said 42% of Americans said they feel positively about socialism. That seems like a high number. It seems like a high number. Going back to the, the first conversation we had about Cuba, maybe right. people will start to, to open their eyes. Uh, That's so. one of the reasons why I think the best the best people who can speak out against socialism are those who've lived under socialism. And so we've tried to tell some of those stories from Venezuela or China or to the extent that we can uh, in Cuba. And I, I think that um, I, I think that when you hear about the fact that uh, not only is it the lack of freedoms that, that come with with an increase in socialism, uh, it's the authoritarianness, uh, in some cases the totalitarianness, but it's um, it's also everyday uh, pleasures that we enjoy about life that just don't exist. I mean, you 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 to hear about you know the bread lines or the gas lines in some of these countries and the inability to to just have a functioning society is is really quite startling. And so I think the part of the problem is um, so many for for now a generation or more students who whether it be in in high school or, or or particularly in college. I mean, this is these are the ideas that they're exposed to and they're only told about the positive nature of them. But when you look at it in in, in practical reality, uh, it doesn't come true. Uh, communism has failed in every sense in, in every place that has been tried. And so, um, you know, it is it is not necessarily uh, one of those things that we talk about in everyday life. But I think that it's it, there's a role for parents here to educate about the freedoms that we enjoy in America and why our country is so great. Yeah, it's important to understand economics, isn't it? It is. And and yes, we, uh, Bill, I'm so glad you brought this up because, you know, we we, we have this piece on the Daily Signal where so few Americans get an education in economics today. Um, it's it's minuscule, the number of people who are, who are taught courses in economics. And these are some of the most basic building blocks that, that I think we have. It's probably one of the reasons why we have such a big debt problem here in our nation's <laughs> capital, <laughs> because, you know, individuals struggle with it in their own personal lives, but we as a country struggle with it, let's face it. And uh, it's encouraging um, that uh, that so many more Americans were able to, to save during the pandemic. But yeah, it's... Uh, uh, it's it's something that we're confronting um, as, as inflation, as big news in Washington, D.C. today was about the rising uh, inflation numbers. I think as that continues to be on the minds of the American people, the increase in consumer goods, the higher cost of, of cars and, and gasoline and, and food and everything that goes with it. Um, you know, big issues on our minds, Bill, that's for yeah. sure. Rob, thanks so much for joining me. It's so nice to have you back. Have a great rest of the day. 
Thank you, Bill. You bet. Rob Louie's been my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. You always head over to dailysignal.com. We'll take a break. When we come back, Scott Hubbard is going to be joining me in studio. Be right back. I promised you Scott Harbour would be in the studio, and I am fulfilling my promises. He is a graduate of Bethlehem College and Seminary, and he's an editor for DesiringGod.org. So you can go to DesiringGod.org and read all of his articles, which are there on the website. Uh, He wrote an article that has kind of a spicy title. I'm going to give it to you right now. The title is called, you ready? Let Your Dream Church Die. How discontentment destroys community. I feel like Ricky Ricardo right now. <laughs> Lucy, you have some sp- some explaining to do. <laughs> Scott, welcome. Yeah, thanks very much. I know Bill. I'm way too old to, for that reference to mean anything to you. No, but... no, you're not too. I'm not too young. I okay. watched that just a little bit. You okay, know, it's good. Been a while. But good, good. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So uh, this is a very interesting article. It's convicting. I am, and I want to talk about it. Well, great. I'm eager to talk about it. It is a a spicy title, as you said, and I'm speaking mostly to myself with this article and with that title. It's something that I dearly need to remember often. Let's get into it. Okay. So I was reading at some point just the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. And for those who know the book of Ephesians, it's the pivot point in Paul's letter. So chapters 1 to 3, primarily addressing all that God has done for us in Christ to make us the church, to make us his people, to indwell us by his Holy Spirit. And now he's turning in chapter 4 to talk to the church, okay, how do we live in light of this great salvation? And here's what he says. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's a passage I had read before and <laughs> was familiar with. And there are lots of words there that just mm-hmm. sound like vague, nice spiritual words. Like, oh yeah, humility, patience, peace. Yeah, that's uh, who, who has any problem with that? And uh, just that passage combined with some experience in churches, knowing some of the friction that can be there when you're in any body of believers, um, I just started thinking, man, what what does patience really mean? Like, wh- what is this really calling for? What, is, uh, what does it mean to bear with one another in love? And it's, uh, well, that means you, you feel tempted to be impatient. Oh, that means you feel tempted to, uh, or you feel another person as a, as a burden, like, Okay, interesting. So to be provoked to impatience by somebody in my Christian community, to feel like someone is resting like a burden on my shoulders, uh, to need to bear with one another in love and eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit, uh, oh, that's just, that's just Christianity 101. That's normal church life. When I'm, I'm tempted myself to treat it as, hey, something's wrong here. Like, this, something's wrong in this community if I need to exercise patience or bearing with another person or that sort of thing. That when when you made that reference to bearing with one another in love, 
it did strike me, like you say in your article, it feels like a, that could be like a burden. That's right. I mean, it's uh, it, <laughs> just to read that word really literally, it's like uh, we, we have that phrase, bear with me. And when we, when we say that and we're asking people like, you know, put up with me for, for a little bit. And Paul, of course, speaks more explicitly to this elsewhere mm-hmm. in Galatians. He talks about bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. And, you know, it's not a burden if it doesn't feel heavy. Mm-hmm. It's not a burden if it doesn't weigh you down. Yeah, you say in your article, Scott, why would he call us to walk with patience, for example, if he did not assume that we would regularly provoke each other to impatience? Right. Yeah. It's like... Okay, now I'm feeling convicted. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's easy, isn't it, to consider yourself a patient person outside the moment when you're tempted to impatience. Of course. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a regular experience for me, uh, where I'm just in my morning devotions, reading the word, praying, man, I feel, I feel close to God. I feel holy. Uh, (laughs) and, and then an hour or two later, it's like, uh, man, I feel impatient. I feel frustrated. I feel irritated. And what happened in between those two moments? Uh, almost always people happened. And I, what I, what I, heard from the word, what I experienced with God in prayer now needs to be pressed into the crucible of relationships with people. And the the holiness that I felt is perhaps not unreal, but perhaps just is now being put through the test of like, okay, are you patient when someone makes that insensitive comment? Are you patient when someone gives you that kind of counsel that you actually didn't ask for? <laughs> like that's the moment where patience shines because it's yeah, it's it's not patience unless there's yeah. something to be impatient about. And, and Scott, you also say in your article, we may listen helplessly as a small group member carries the discussion down into the deepest of rabbit holes. If such <laughs> friction were no part of our life together, we would need no we would have no need for patience. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So so much of this article for me writing to myself and if others are overhearing it and and find it helpful as well, is mainly reorienting expectations. Because I think it is very easy for myself to come into the church and to have expectations sometimes that really are drawn from what the Scripture has to say about the glory of God's people. And, I mean, the Scriptures are so full with radiant expressions about who we are as Christ's people. We are His bride. We are the Father's children. We are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And maybe we've tasted before of just some rich Christian community. And so we have these expectations for what church life should be like. We walk into it and, yeah, we're sitting in small group talking about, you know, uh, some passage in the Gospels and and someone takes it and it's like, wait, all right, they just took that and they are going not, not only to left field, they're up in the stand somewhere. Like, where is this going? And that can feel like uh, an anomaly or this isn't, this isn't what church life is supposed to be like, like putting up with um, this kind of provocation or annoyance. Obviously, that's a small example. We could come up with much bigger ones, things that are genuinely hurtful. Um, but even those, Paul is going to say, have that as part of your expectation for what church life should be like, because otherwise there'd be no need for patience. There'd be no need for humility. Be no need for bearing with one another. And so, so much of this is about entering a Christian community, whether a new one or one that we've been in for a long time with the right expectations. So are you suggesting that we be mature? 
<laughs> because that's not going to fly. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you could put it that way. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's add balance to the discussion, Scott. Now, there, sometimes you say that you are you are in the wrong community. Yeah, that's a category. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so let's just add that into the discussion. Yep. So I totally know that there are some people who walk into a new church, for example, on the outside. You know, you visit for a month or something like that. It seems healthy. And you get into it for a few weeks, a few months, a few years, and all of a sudden there appear things that you didn't see uh, from the outside that are evidences of just there's advanced disease in this body. And I'm not saying that in every case when you feel disappointed by your church or disillusioned by your church that the uh, that obedience means sticking with it and patiently enduring. But I would venture to say that uh, in the vast majority of cases, when we feel disillusionment settle upon us, when we look at our church and say, this is what not what I thought it was going to be, in the vast majority of cases, obedience likely means for us, patiently endure in love. Mm-hmm. Change your expectations, value Christ-likeness, becoming more like Him, becoming closer to Him, above the dream of the community that you had in your mind. You also say, and unless we have joined a remarkably homogenous church, we will find ourselves surrounded by people we would never have associated with if not for the love of Christ. That's right. And that's where so many of these provocations, irritations, frustrations come from, isn't it? It's so much of it isn't sin. I mean, some of it is for sure, but so much of it is just personality. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm getting together with believers in if unless, like I said, if you're in a church with people just like each other, you're going to get together with somebody who comes from a totally different walk of life, totally different background, totally different family, totally different interests. You know, they can they, they don't know the first thing about the things you're passionate about. You know, and so you don't have that just kind of instant connection on a on a hobby personality level. Yeah, what's tying you together is the Lord Jesus Christ, His blood, His Spirit, and uh, you're now trying to figure out, okay, so that that foundation is there, it's strong, but man, we have these personalities that are just, uh, they just rub against each other. So, Yeah, I'm curious as to how we do this better, because I, I love what you're saying. Yeah. And it sounds like you are encouraging people to have this Christ-like attitude, which I agree with, but you even make, you even in your article talk about even people you struggle to make small talk with. I mean, there's there's certain people we're just going to have a hard time connecting to. Yeah. And, and we might do a little, you know, a little um, moment of, well, that person and I probably aren't going to get along. Yet we're brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so r- really there are there are absolutely ways to grow in this. It, by God's grace, we can move forward ways that he outlines in his word. But the first step really has been for me, the expectation change. So if you're sitting next to somebody in, uh, on Sunday morning and, you know, the service just ended, you see your friends halfway across the room, but you're talking to this person next to you and it's just, uh, it's just hard. Like you just struggle to find things to connect over. Maybe they're not asking you questions back. You're trying to generate this conversation. (laughs) It's like, okay, what's the, uh, there, if, if you haven't come in with expectations that are just this is normal, this is part of healthy church life, likely, I'll speak for myself, 
I'm just going to feel like, ah, okay, how do I get out of this, squirm out of this, get over to somebody I'm comfortable talking with. But if down deep from reading the Bible, you know, okay, this is what normal, healthy church life is like. And this in particular is a special place where the glory of Christ shines because the glory of Christ shines brighter, doesn't it? When he connects us to people that were totally unlike than people that were totally like. True. (laughs) Showing that, okay, we don't, we can't really connect easily over hobbies and that sort of thing, but this person and I are closer than brothers because of the blood of Jesus. And so we're going to work at it. And if you have, if that's your expectation, uh, you might stick around for five to 10 minutes longer. Just press in, press in before you go talk to a friend. I like that. What are some community destroyers? So this line, you know, destroyer sounds like a pretty intense word. That's well, a, it's a spicy article. That's a spicy word. That's part of the spicy article. Yeah, that's you right. You have more explaining to do. Yeah, that's right. It's not my word, actually. It comes okay. from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. He was a pastor in Germany in first half of the 20th century. Here, here's his line. He has a great book called Life Together. Lots of, I mean, if you want to be convicted about life in community, <laughs> read that book. This is early on. He says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. What does that mean? I take it to mean when you come into a Christian community and you have this great dream of what you want it to be like, Mm. And the reality does not match that dream, even though the reality aligns with what Scripture tells us to expect. All of a sudden, now it's like trying to drive a car out of gear. You're going to be you're going to be trying to press the gas in a direction that you're just. You're, it's not God doesn't mean for it to go that way. At least not in that way, not at that pace. And so those who hold on so tenaciously to this dream of their Christian community, don't give thanks for the actual Christian community that God has given to them, don't work patiently within it in love, but try to shift things forward, try to take charge and, and you know, often criticizing along the way, like, oh, why is this like that? Why do our pastors do it like that? <laughs> that's, that's recipe for destruction. You say sometimes the destroyers of community look obvious. They are the agitators, the complainers, the everlasting fault finders. You didn't have to get personal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, I mean, those those are the obvious ones, right? <laughs> it's like we know, and we've probably all heard stories or been part of stories where a church has split down the middle mm-hmm. or a third of it is taken away because somebody like this, perhaps, a dreamer of Christian community, and they they have rubbed against the way the actual Christian community is, and so they they just start gathering people to themselves, and all of a sudden, you know, after a time, they split. So that's the obvious kind of community destroyer. But the one that hits me more close to home uh, is a far more subtle one, and I was thinking about this in Ephesians 4. You know, he, he says uh, that we, we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that word eager just stuck out to me at some point like okay not only maintain it but be eager to maintain it and i realized i can become a community destroyer not by gathering a bunch of people to myself and dividing but just by not being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit Mm -hmm. like apathy in the church can do as much as antagonism can 
that can work toward the destruction of a community. If all of a sudden, you know, you just, you get to a point where you're like, I'm, I'm just not going to try anymore. I'm not going to move toward people anymore. It's like to, to use the metaphor of the body, you know, the body, the church as a body. You, you've become a hand that is just lifeless now. And uh, a body with a lifeless hand uh, is going to have problems. It's life isn't going to be as easy as it would be if that hand were working, if it were moving. Mm-hmm. And so we can destroy by inaction as much as we can by action. I'll take a break. Scott Hubbard is my guest. We're talking about a very spicy article that he wrote at DesiringGod.org called Let Your Dream Church Die, How Discontentment Destroys Community. Very convicting time with you, Scott. Uh, I'm going to ask you questions when I come back that That are going to be personal. Okay. All right. Be right back. My guest, nice enough to come into studio, and this is quite a convicting discussion we're having with him. He wrote an article at DesiringGod.org. You should check it out. Called "Let Your Dream Church Die: How Discontentment Destroys Community." It's an uh, article that he wrote, a Desiring God. So, Scott, when you in the article talk about, uh, let's see if I can find it here. There, you would be uh, a agitator, a complainer, or a fault finder. Has yeah. that been you at any time, maybe just internally? Um, but have you suffered from that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. This is the internal dialogue that I need to continually uh, respond to God's word with and uh, to bring to God in prayer because I am, this isn't obviously uh, exclusive to type A personalities, but uh, I find myself like that. I, I, I like, you know, precision and people to to run by expectations and for things to be predictable. And uh, man, you know, that's not always how it happens in the church. <laughs> are you a, are you a Type A guy? Yeah. Are you the kind of guy that would try to pass me inside the car wash? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Is that possible? Has I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. Once you're on the track, I don't think you can go anywhere. Yeah. But there's people right. that would try. There, yeah. There are know, some. Even with very little margin. Um, but. I was very uh, concerned when you said that some of these internal feelings of complaining or fault finding or agitating may not manifest itself in the sense of disunity among the the family, but it's it leads to apathy, and that is brutal because then you don't do anything. Yeah, that's right. So, and and part of it is so understandable, isn't it? Because a lot of the fault finding and complaining is not in response to small things, though some of it is, but some of it is in response to genuine injury. Like somebody has hurt you. Somebody has wounded you. Somebody has sinned against you. Mm, yeah. And uh, how easy is it for our response to be, well, I'm, I'm just going to not go your way anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm going to back off from this relationship. And of course there's, uh, time where wisdom would say, yeah, that's that's appropriate for a time. There's conflict resolution, mediation, that kind of thing. But the, what I experience in my own heart is 
somebody has, has sinned against me. They've genuinely hurt me. It's maybe not even to the point where uh, there needs to be a full-fledged confession and, and offering forgiveness, though maybe it is to that point. And now, you know, the, a similar situation comes up a few weeks from there. There's an opportunity to get close with this person again, and I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to go there. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to press in with this person. I don't want to uh, go into a situation where I might get wounded again, where they might say what they said again, where they might do what they did again. And I find it easier to pull away. And what I feel convicted by myself is that in, in those situations, I am not being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Because if I were eager, you know, other translations put it as like, make every effort be uh, zealous for this, to maintain the unity of the spirit. If that were the case, then I'm going to press in to uncomfortable relational situations that I would never press into otherwise. They would just be so much more comfortable to back away from. But if this is about maintaining the unity of the church of Jesus, then by God's grace, may he help me move forward into this relationship that I've been wounded in in the past. And I feel a little, you know, I, I hesitate to go back there. Mm. Should we go out after the show and get the eager temporary tattoos? <laughs> I mean, that would wash off like in five days. I mean, it would just remind yeah. us to be eager. I love yeah. that message. Yeah. Is to have that at the forefront of your brain. Am I being eager? Right. And it, it obviously applies beyond the moment of frustration. Or right. Of offense. course. Oh, like, of course. Uh, am I taking initiative in my church? Am I fostering unity? Yes. And not only, you know, it, it, we can, I can assume sometimes that my job is just not to be a divider, you know, not to be someone who disunites. Right. But, but am I someone who unites? Am I a peacemaker? Yeah. Ooh, if strong Jesus message. Words. Strong message. Let's yeah. talk a little bit more about beautiful burdens. Okay. So well, there are two paths before us when you enter into a moment where somebody has hurt you, someone has irritated you, you know, and you can scale it up or down on, on the on the small or the large. The small, you know, someone's clapping on the offbeat. Someone is singing totally out of tune right behind you. On the large, someone has slandered you behind your back and or, or something along those lines. And there are two options here. And the one we've talked about quite a bit is the, the option of the, of the destroyer, whether mm-hmm. passively or actively. And the other option is the one that Paul puts before us here, which is to see this person in front of us, behind us, this person in, our, in the church as a, as a beautiful burden. And what I mean by that is that as we take on this burden with the strength that God supplies, we become more like Jesus. He is the ultimate patient one. <laughs> he is the ultimately humble one, the ultimately uh, the one who bore the burdens of not only our sin, but of the whole world. The one who was so eager for unity in his body that he shed his blood for it. And so when we take on the burdens of others as our own, we are becoming more like Jesus. And, you know, to return to the conversation about expectations is one question that or thought that has been so challenging for me is I, I, I pray for Christ's likeness on a regular basis. I pray for more holiness. I pray for more godliness. I want to be more like him. I want to be more like Jesus. And I don't expect him often to answer that prayer by sending me an offense or by putting an irritation in my life or a temptation to be impatient. But how else are we going to become like Jesus? 
unless we have to bear burdens that feel heavy and and walk through temptations to impatience with patience that comes from the Holy Spirit. There's there's no other context in this world where we become more like Jesus, or at least it's it's impossible to become more like him in these ways apart from these kinds of frustrating circumstances. Mm-hmm. I love that you've referenced Ephesians 4.32. I think everybody should memorize that. Um, in, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's right. So it's just putting all of our church relationships under the shadow of what Jesus has done for us. So the church should be a place where our relationships can only be explained by the cross and the empty tomb Mm -hmm. because of what Jesus has done, because he has loved us, forgiven us, been tender with us, been kind to us. Therefore we are that way to one another and for no, ultimately for no other reason. And churches are full of people and people are complicated. People are so complicated. They are. Yeah. I mean, just look how complicated you are. I, I think that every day. <laughs> I, do. <laughs> I do too, now that you came in with this message. Yeah. <laughs> I used to not feel bothered or threatened by you. Now it's like, oh, Scott. <laughs> well, you're getting a window into my, my own heart. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. speaking to myself here. No, I appreciate it. I think it's resonated with a lot of us, including me. So thanks for this uh, time today. Uh, Scott Hubbard has been my guest. He has written this uh article, which is at DesiringGod.org. It's called Let Your Dream Church Die, How Discontentment Destroys Community. If you want to go reference that article, just head over to DesiringGod.org. Scott, thanks for being here. Thanks very much, Bill. All right, we'll take a little uh, time out, uh, very short, and then when we come back, hour two is just ahead. Beverly Canaris is going to join me. We're going to talk about Psalm 63. So maybe during the break, get out your Bible and read Psalm 63 to get ready for it. And then Dwight Nordstrom is going to be coming in. He has been a China businessman missionary for the last 30 years, and we're going to get an update on what's going on in China. That's all next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.